0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, home of the song story and a weekly exploration of the way music and songs become connected to memories and stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary Our guest this week is Stephen Cabot. Stephen teaches English and creative writing at Florida Gulf Coast University. His brief bio says he loves dogs, mountains, and jeeps, and that he's led groups around the world, from the back trails of the Appalachians to the busy streets of Shanghai. He has taught for Duke University, the University of Tennessee, Georgia College, and Chattanooga State University. Community College. He's been at FGCU since 2018. Hey there, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Mike. Doing well. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. So, first question has to be: Do you remember the best pumpkin pie you ever had? Ooh, I'm not a pumpkin pie fan. I don't want to. Your bio here. says you
0: are a pumpkin pie eater. Ah, uh, that may have been a lie. That may have been just for fun.
1: Okay, fake news. Fake news. Okay, <laughs> so. Cool. Okay, so then, um, what kind of music and or podcast were you listening to on your way to campus this morning, and was it in a Jeep?
0: It was in a Jeep. It was in a 2001 Jeep Wrangler that needs so much work, which is the state of most 2001 Wranglers. Uh, And I listened to a little playlist on Spotify called Radio Interview, uh, in which I (laughs) had put the possible candidates for the show. Interesting. Do you listen to podcasts? Do you listen to music? What is your balance? I tend to kind of space out on the same playlist that I create on Spotify over and over. So I have like a, a season in which I'm vegging out on The Killers or I'm on Bear's Den over and over and over. Sometimes
1: it's a Bruce Springsteen phase and I just walk around with that in my ears for hours. So, if it's a two thousand and one Jeep, how are you listening to digital music in your car? How do you have that rigged up? It'd be great if I told you that the radio was running and I had the aux cable, but actually, I just I just
0: use speaker on my phone because the radio's broken right now.
1: You and I have some things in common, Stephen. Yeah. Um, okay. So, where did you grow up, and how would you describe uh, sort of the musical background of your childhood in terms of you know what this you know what was happening around you, what were your parents listening to, things like that?
0: I'm gonna take you into two examples of that musical background in two of our songs today. Um, I grew up with Southern gospel and my family was actually like we were a little gospel quartet. Uh, so I grew up like making up harmonies in church, you know, a lot of people that couldn't read music, but just learned to listen to where they could fit in. Uh, I listened to a lot of country growing up. The rock phase didn't hit until post-college, I think. Um, so kind of what you, Like what you would expect, I think, of a white boy growing up in North Georgia in the 80s. That was kind of me. And I, I grew up above Atlanta and then um, part of my youth outside of Nashville, Tennessee.
1: What's the earliest musical memory you can recall if you try to dig back? Like what might pop into your head when you think music and childhood? Hmm.
0: It's probably—it's an unspecified blur of some kind of gospel happening in the background while I walk up the red carpeted aisles of Autry Baptist Church past the stained glass windows to sit in my granddaddy's lap. You know, it's just kind of like an adult blur of music.
1: Well put. You are a storyteller. You teach storytelling, so you can tell stories too. Um, Can you recall a time as a child where you might remember music moving you somehow, where it wasn't just songs that you heard, but something that you felt?
0: I can tell you about the the shock and horror when I discovered my, my middle sister's first rock and roll album. I was like, "Wait, are we allowed to listen to this?" And uh, I remember listening to uh, "Every Rose Has Its Thorn," right? And I was like, "Is this is this the devil?" And it was pretty. It was pretty great tunes.
1: Uh, brothers, sisters, you have a sister, so break down what the rest are.
0: I've got two sisters. Uh, Stacey's the oldest.
1: Sherry's in the middle, and then there's me. Uh, so, besides the uh, Guns and Roses, how else did they influence you musically?
0: That's a great question. Um... I don't think they shaped my musical interests. I mean, just whatever they had playing, you know, on the radio in their cars when they would drive me around. Um, I feel like I kind of went out and found my own, really. The bulk of my love for music has always been alt-country, like Americana kind of stuff. We had a great radio station when I was living in Nashville that's off the air now. You could hear, like, Patty Griffin and Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams and Casey Chambers. So I kind of went out and...
1: Fell in love with all that on my own, I think. Was there a, a band or a musician who you first really glommed onto that really caught your attention when you were younger? It's um, a great question. Just a lot, of, a lot of country
0: acts, both bands and solo artists. I kind of, I think country died around the time of Garth Brooks. So everybody before Garth Brooks, basically. Like between Hank Williams and Garth Brooks, any of that kind of moved me. Tanya
1: Tucker was a big one for me when I was growing up. I think country died around the time of Garth Brooks. I love that. That's a great. <laughs> I mean, this is my chance to
0: say it on the radio. Ever since then, it's just been a bunch of suburban white kids pretending that they're country. But they don't know the back end of a horse. So all they do is just like sing about how country they are because they they've never worked a day in their lives.
1: Hmm. Uh, so do you remember the first music that you owned yourself that you somehow either bought with, you know, allowance money or was given to you as a gift that you asked for, but something that was yours?
0: Yeah. There were a couple of, couple of like contemporary Christian rock albums. I think I had one of Charlie Peacock CDs. I know that he was my first, uh, concert I ever went to. Charlie Peacock was this, um, let me just grab it. Just like rocker for Jesus, <laughs> and some of his stuff is super cheesy now. And I, I almost, almost made y'all play the, uh, what's it, "Kiss Me Like a Woman" and "I'll Love You Like a Man" track off that, off that album. It was super controversial in the Christian community because it talked about like love making between spouses, which in that decade was, you know, like kind of risque. Now we wouldn't see it that way. Did you get dragged to that concert, or did you choose to <clears> go? <laughs> Man, it would make me look so much cooler if I said that I got dragged. You know, I was all
1: in. (laughs) I I dragged my mom with me to that concert. (laughs) I was all about that Jesus rock. Um, Were there instruments being played around you, and did you play any as a child?
0: There were always instruments being played. Um, My sister played piano well. I improvised and banged around in the key of C on the piano and could sound like I knew what I was doing if I stayed in that key. Uh, We both had... Piano lessons. Grown up, I had guitar lessons for a little while, acoustic guitar. Grown up, and usually the the family singing would be like Sherry playing piano and mom and dad singing and me singing. Um, we'd all kind of like find our find our parts. So usually, like we we kind of have impromptu gospel practices. Basically, when mom decided it was time for us to sing, she'd holler us in. We'd practice. So it was always like it was always there in the background, you know. Did you ever do any song writing? Oh God, yeah! For decades, that's kind of how I got through the lonely nights,
1: you know. But mm. well, we'll get further into that a little later. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can. Uh, uh, drums. When did drumming come across your radar?
0: When did drumming? Um, gosh, that's a great question. I guess I got into it in middle school. I was I was either we had to pick like a primary and a secondary instrument right in middle school band. I was either going to be in the drums or I was going to play clarinet. And thank God it went drums. Um, which had, like, like I needed any cool points that I could get then and now. So I started playing, you know, Concert Snare and so forth, and then I marched uh, bass drum for Sprayberry High School, which was a pretty good marching band at the time in Marietta, Georgia. And then after that, I got into drum set a little bit. Um, and then somewhere down the line, I got really interested in, like, world music and hand drums and spent a while making Mostly Native American style hand drums and showing folks how to do that.
1: So you've spent a fair amount of time at drum circles.
0: Kind of more more leaning towards like contemplative drum circles and drum circles with a spiritual focus. The like, you know, hippie kids dancing at the park in a circle. (laughs) I've done a few times. So mindful drum circles. Yeah, I used to run a drum circle for a couple years at the Center for Mindful Living in Chattanooga. So we would use the the rhythms do a lot for your brain, right? So we would use them for um centering and focusing the mind and stress relief and things like that. You still doing that kind of thing? I'm doing it at home when I need it. Um I've still got a couple of drums tucked away in the closet. And then I use the drum quite a lot in the um shamanic life class that I teach here in our integrated studies department.
1: Hmm. Well we'll get more into that later too. Uh, <laughs> last question before we get to your first song. If you could learn an instrument instantly and be like prodigious about it, you know, without trying, what would it be?
0: Oh gosh. I would become a master of the piano. One of my students, I've gotten to hear him play a couple times here at our concert hall, and he just rocked my world. Um, So I think hearing that and a few other friends that can play well, yeah, it'd be great to be able to tickle the ivories.
1: And playing all those crazy keys besides C. <laughs> Imagine branching out beyond, the, like, <laughs> using the black keys. What, what kind uh, of devilry is this? Uh, that's great. Um, okay, well, let's play your first song. Um, I'm going to just go with them in the order that you listed them, since you sure. said you really didn't have a preference. This is the Amazing Grace song. So would you like to tell a story? Would you like to listen to it? How would you like to go forward?
0: Let's listen to Ralph Stanley do Amazing Grace first.
1: Okay, this is Stephen Cavett's first song on today's episode of Three Song Stories. This is Amazing Grace, performed by Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys from the 1977 album, Clinch Mountain Gospel. So
0: where's that take you? Well, I didn't actually think that it was going to take me right back to the moment, but that one takes me to the moment that my granddaddy died. Uh, in a house that he had built in Marietta, Georgia, somewhere around 1996, I guess, 95, 96. Um, He was definitely one of the best men I've ever known. And I was thinking, we talked a little bit about drum making, right, the fact that I used to do it. And if you look at the hide of a horse or a deer or an elk, and you flip it around, you can see on the underside of some of the old scars, like where they brushed up against a barbed wire fence or you know, got poked by a thorn. There's this map of its, its scars and its life under the skin. And one of those moments, I think if you peel back my skin would be when my granddad died. It was like one of those world-shaking, faith-shaking kind of moments. You know? So Amazing Grace takes us back into my grandparents' living room and my granddad is in a hospice bed and i've always i've always had problems with the outpouring of grief right like sometimes it seems like people are crying for themselves more than the one they've lost so the moment that my granddad finally had his you know his death rattle <clears throat> took his last breath and um well i guess his fingers had already been cold i just sort of started singing amazing grace cuz i figured that was the way to wing him on his way, and it was a song he would have loved. That's where it takes us. How old were you at that time? I was around 17, 18 when he passed. Why did you choose this particular version of the song? You know, it's funny, this one isn't necessarily even my favorite version, but it's about the only version I could get my hands on that sounded like where I grew up. So, you know, most... Most versions of any song on the radio, including Amazing Grace, just have one singer and maybe one person doing harmony. But in the little churches where I grew up, it was everybody piling in and squeezing in where they could to do the harmonies. And the Clinch Mountain Boys, I think, replicate that better than any other recorded version that I've heard. I
1: really liked it. I really like that version. I was going to say, I, I don't know if I ever had a favorite version of Amazing Grace, but I certainly will remember that one in a way that I don't remember most of them.
0: You know, I, I tell you too, it sounded really good on these studio headphones. Sound a lot better than it does in my Jeep with the speaker on my iPhone. You need to get a little Bluetooth speaker to bump up your game a little <clears throat> it's bit. Time, it's time to, I got a radio ready to install. It's summer, so I can go back to working on the Jeep. Um, what was your grandfather's name? Uh, my grandfather's name was Marshall. Marshall Woodfin Cabot. And we did make fun of the Woodfin with some regularity. What's your middle name? Actually, my middle name is Stephen. So my first name is Gary, which is my dad's name. And they didn't want me to be a
1: junior. So they called me by my middle name. You know, that song gave me some Oh Brother Where Art Thou vibes.
0: That's because Ralph Stanley has that famous version of Oh Death. Uh, that's in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Huh. He's the, he's the one that... Oh Death... Won't you spare me over for another year? That's Ralph Stanley. Killing it.
1: You can sing, Stephen.
0: Oh bless you. Thanks. It's been a minute. Do
1: you, do you still sing often? I mean, you know, do you ever sing out in public or do you sing at home, or what's the what's your singing, my singing situation <laughs> these days? Hello,
0: my singing situation. That's a good band name, actually. The singing situations playing at seven PM. Um I sing mostly at home. There is some um, uh, spiritual use to song in the shamanism that I teach, so I do that like as a kind of contemplative practice and lately um, I teach a lot and <laughs> I do a lot of service around here so i haven 't had as much time to get out the guitar and write songs and sing but i'll i 'll pull out the guitar like when I need the medicine of it you know when life is either really good or really tough and music is the only thing and i 'll sing it then Are you a karaoke ear? I've never been a karaokeer. I don't think I've ever done karaoke. I used to play like open mics, coffee shops, um, alone or with a couple, you know, with a friend, a couple different friends. But I've never done karaoke.
1: Hmm. Um, okay, let's go to your high school years. What was the musical scene like for you in high school? <laughs> the musical scene in high school was
0: I had one tape of some Christian band, I can't remember, and I would just play it in my first Jeep over and over while I drove my neighbor and friend Billy to school. We would listen to the same tape every morning, junior year, uh, driving. I saw him at, like after high school. He's like, remember that one tape? I can't remember what it was now, but I owned like one tape and we just listened to it over and over. What was your first Jeep? My first Jeep, ooh, it's a good story that may get me in trouble. Um, my first Jeep was a 93 Wrangler. It was a YJ, well, they weren't to the TJ models yet. And I got it I got it by accident, kind of. My dad had always promised, like, I was his only boy. He's like, I'm going to get you a Jeep when you're old enough to drive. And I don't think it would have happened, except that my oldest sister co-signed for her boyfriend's Jeep loan. And uh, he was unable to continue making payments. So she got stuck with it, and then my parents took it over, and then they gave it to me. So it was this beautiful, like beautiful blue color. They don't have that same color anymore. And uh, it was a soft top. And it was pretty, like no power steering, you know, and like that huge, like huge stick for the manual. It's awesome.
1: I had a uh, what was it? It was a '95 Cherokee uh-huh. that I bought in about 2006, Good. and it had like 120,000 miles on it. It was the simplest of the models, so it was a it was a two door, uh-huh. four speed, nice. You know the 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 dashboard was like super simple, almost like a Jeep for a male person or something like yep. that. Bought it for $1,200, sold it for $500 with 290,000 miles on it.
0: <laughs> That's a success story. Right oh there.
1: man, it was, I love that thing so much. And did you
0: build out the back with like a bed or a camping setup?
1: No, no, it just okay. it just was super simple and uh, and I loved it and I, I moved on and uh, I miss it. I will get a Jeep again probably someday, but I moved on to a Subaru and I don't know, I'm kind of stuck on Subaru now. Um, so back to high school. Um, high school dances. Did you go into any high school dances? Do you remember like what would have been playing? Do you remember maybe your first slow dance is what we're getting towards? You know, i got to
0: be honest. If if I had taken my cue from the celebrities, I would have given you questions you aren't allowed to ask me. Like, why didn't you get to dance in high school and why weren't you popular? Um, I dance a lot. I can tell you. I remember dancing at the JROTC formal. Um, and I remember, let's see. A little song, uh, was it Boys to Men? I'll make love to you. Yeah, last. that's Boys to Men, Meltown. Yeah. Motown. Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: you just mentioned two of my favorite things, Meltown and the JROTC. I was in the Army JROTC. I man. graduated as, um, cadet major
0: as the Battalion S2. Respect. I was a platoon leader, second lieutenant, and, uh, it actually formed a lot of what I think about leadership still. You Same. Know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, it's definitely, um, formed who i am as a person now you know like i wouldn't be who i am without that program so it's cool to see somebody else who who came from that
0: awesome yeah on the on the very opposite end of the spectrum from dancing my first day in jrotc i watched a guy do a solid uppercut and knock a guy's tooth out (laughs) our colonel had stepped out of the room for a second and another of the new guys like you know somebody sassed him and he just stood up and like uppercutted him and I was like what this is before of course I had become an officer and I was like what's gonna happen to me in this place so I didn't do a lot of fighting or a lot of dancing I feel like I went to a couple proms and uh, I could slow dance because my sisters and my mom thought it was important for me to learn how to slow dance right so like my mama taught me how to dance well but once you get into the like like hip-hop rock or anything where I actually have to move beyond a circle it's getting sketchy
1: Beyond a circle. Um, (laughs) Keep me in my home
0: circle. I'm good.
1: So when you were in high school, um, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, were you uh, fancying yourself a writer? Were you a writer already at that point in time? You know, give us the idea of where you wanted the arc to go. I appreciate that question. Um, I did want to be a writer.
0: I I wanted to be a a writer, I want to say, like when I was really young. I I walked into Walmart one time with my folks. And there was this cardboard display, you know, like cardboard shelves they put up at the end of an aisle with some sort of paperback. And I said something to my folks about, like, a machine making it. Whatever, My mom's like, no, people write those. Like, people make those. And some light bulb went off, and I was like, I could do this. Uh, so I had always kind of thought about it. And then by the time I got oh, to be, like, a freshman or, or a sophomore in high school, people were starting to, you know, to kind of, like, self-identify what they wanted to be. And I knew, like, the only thing I seemed to be any good at that people gave me positive, you know, they're like, you're really good at this, was writing. Um, so I had thought about it, and I also wanted I wanted to write and I wanted to travel a ton. Like, I remember thinking my ideal job would be, like, like I'd just stay in town and work for, you know, six months and then leave and go away <laughs> and see something and come back and work for, you know, five, six months again,
1: which is kind of what summers are like, I guess. I, I often
0: leave for research
1: here. What kind of writing were you doing in high school? Were you a poetry writer at that age? Were you writing short fiction or anything like that?
0: I was writing terrible poetry. I remember- Angsty poetry? Angsty, lonely, love-lorn poetry. Like in one of them, I think I compared Jennifer Babcock's blonde hair to like a ray of sunshine. Or, it, was, it was pretty bad. It was, it was pretty, And fortunately, not many people have seen those poems. You still got them somewhere? My mom told me the other day, she's mentioned it twice the last couple of months, that she found a box of my old poetry in the basement and, and she figured I would want
1: to see it. I don't know. It's, it sounds dangerous. My mom, not three months ago, busted out a thing that I had printed out that she found in my thing of my high school poetry. And I glanced through it and that was enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all start somewhere, right? Like my writing students start somewhere, I started somewhere, and then hopefully we... We move into some technique and original territory beyond, like, your hair shines like a ray of sunlight.
1: <laughs> did she at least have blonde hair that was bright, blonde? Oh, uh, beautiful blonde
0: hair, yeah. And I'm, okay. not, I'm not super embarrassed to admit that I still remember it on the radio 20-something years later, because everybody in high school
1: knew that I, <laughs>
0: I had an unrequited love for her anyway.
1: <laughs> um, so what did you go to college for? I mean, was writing in your college you know, p- career, or what did, you, what did you do in college? You know, my first response,
0: and I'm, I'm checking in to see how authentic it is, is maybe I went to college, like, what you go for? Maybe I went because it was the thing to do. Um, right. I did. I studied English. I started out at Belmont University, which is a little bad to school that was close to home. We were living outside of Nashville then. Uh, and I made it two years and then went up to Austin P. State University, which had a, a really solid creative writing program. And I was a terrible college student. It's kind of a, a great irony that I'm a college teacher now because I definitely like failed out because I just quit trying, um, and I, I made it through four schools before I graduated. So I did like I did a tour of many of the schools in the state of Tennessee, and then I graduated from University of Tennessee Chattanooga. So yeah, I did like pretty much did English and creative writing the whole time, except for one brief semester where I was an agriculture major at Middle Tennessee State. Did you do that because there was a girl in the class? <laughs> <laughs> no, I always wanted to live in the country. I'm I'm half Redneck on my mom's side, is how I say it. And uh, some of my mom's people all, you know, kind of live down in the country. And well, I'm not I'm not more than two generations off a farm on either side. But I just I love the quiet of the country. You know, I lived some of my life out on what had been an old dairy farm right when they first started chopping it up. You know, into five acre tracks. And uh, I liked to just get lost out in the neighbor's woods tracking deer and stuff. So I, I kind of thought I would do like a Wendell Berry, Gary Snyder thing, you know, and have like a little family farm at the edge of the mountains and write books. But I became an ag major over there, and I was sitting in a like a livestock management class that first and only semester, and the professor was talking about um, the way you measure back fat on a pig (laughs) sorry listeners you take a uh, you take a metal ruler and you just jam it down through their skin you know and see how far in it goes and that's how you measure on the inches the amount of fat and you know when it's time to go to market and I raised my hand I was like doesn't that hurt the pig (laughs) and everybody in the class just turned and looked at me like I was an idiot but I was like it seems like for a mammal that has nerve endings and emotions and is smarter than dogs like that would hurt and the professor goes, they'll squeal if you just look at them wrong. Right? Like, he wasn't worried. I thought, maybe this isn't the, right, the exact right livestock management program for a sensitive fellow like myself. Yeah, the professor's like, get back to the humanities, boy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, Why don't you go study a poem? Let me raise some pigs, son. Uh, uh, were you playing guitar and writing music when you were in college? You know, Was that part of mm-hmm. who, you? Know, were you like playing around campfires and stuff like that? Um, bless you. Yeah, playing around
0: campfires is my ideal activity. Like, six friends and a guitar around a campfire is kind of heaven for me. Um, I was, yeah, I was playing some... I think I was probably writing songs some with a friend in college. I I played out, like, some open mics. Um, I played out more in grad school. I had a friend who was also in the creative writing program at Georgia College, and we'd go and play open mics together, you know, kind of work up some harmonies together. But I I feel like, I think the... (laughs) The first couple attempts at college, I wasn't yet playing guitar. So it was like middle Tennessee and on that I was playing. By the time I got to UTC, um, my best friend and I, we'd sit around and jam for hours.
1: So not only do we have uh, old Jeeps in common, Stephen, but I was horrible at college. It took me me 16 years to get my bachelor's degree, no joke. And I went to four different schools over that time and was in and out, in and out, in and out. And uh, so, yeah, it all worked out in the end, though, right?
0: It it worked out in the end. I I graduated college um, the same spring as my 10-year high school reunion. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm going to roll up. People are going to be like, I started a business. Well, I made a family with two kids, and I'm just going to hold up a piece of paper
1: and be like, y'all, I finally got out of college. <laughs> I, I did not go <laughs> So connect the dots between getting your degree after 10 years and then going on. I guess you've got, you know, you've got your MFA and you're a Mm -hmm. college professor now. So kind of give us the the how that happened.
0: Well, let me think. I (laughs) I was living in Nashville between colleges two and three. Yeah. So I had not yet tried that agriculture major <laughs> semester, and uh, I was living up in Nashville, and I was going to try to be a songwriter, which really meant that I went out and listened to some shows, and then I worked like 12- and 13-hour shifts at a at a bread-and-company cafe, like totally miserable. And uh, I was reading The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Again, he talks about like how we make our own realities, right? And I thought, this is not the reality I want to make. And then I kind of remember, like, I'm reasonably decent at writing, so that, that's what got me like back into college and then as I finished up college I I just knew I needed to figure out a way to keep myself from always being up on the mountain barefoot running trails which was my preferred activity you know like when I left college for that gap I, it was just cuz I wanted to be up in the woods And so I thought all right I'm going to I'm going to do this masters in creative writing thing give the teaching thing a, a run it seemed like a pretty steady career um Maybe not financially, but like in terms of structure. And it turned out to be true. So, what was your first teaching gig? My first teaching gig, kind of unofficially, was running, helping to run a writers in the schools program uh, at Georgia College. So, my first year in grad school, I was managing like some undergrad students, and we would take them into middle school classrooms with at risk youth. And they would use creative writing as a way to like, build self confidence, you know, build the voice. Um, And then, of course, I did student, Like I was a teaching fellow, teaching composition. My first full-time gig was um, five or six years later, I guess. Uh, I taught at Chattanooga State Community College as an assistant prof, and then I did some adjuncting before then.
1: We will get to your FGCU experience in a little bit, but first we're going to get to your second song. Oh, okay. This is uh, the Lee Greenwood song, so what's going on with it? This good one. I've, I'm sort of gunning
0: to be your most Southern interview here. We started out with Ralph Stanley and Amazing Grace, and now we're going to hear Lee Greenway God Bless the USA. Um, the song you'll hear in your head when you touch back down at an American airport after you've been out of the country. That's my, that's my lean in.
1: So you want to listen to it?
0: Let's hear this thing.
1: All right, this is Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA It's from his 1984 album, You've Got a Good Love Coming. It's Stephen Cavett's second song here on Three Song Stories. The
0: USA. Sweet. I'm still just taking it in. Um, I used to teach for many years summer programs at Duke University. First at uh, Duke TIP, the Talent Identification Program, which is a summer enrichment program for gifted kids and then at Big Duke in their summer studies program. And so when I was flying out to China to teach in Shanghai for a global leadership program that we had, one of my coworkers said, when you get back to America, he was giving me all sorts of tips for teaching in China, he said, so when you get back to America, the song that you're gonna hear going through your head as soon as you hit the airport and you walk through customs is gonna be Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA. Darned if he wasn't right. I, I didn't think anything about it. And I got back and I landed, I started carrying my luggage. You know, and down the hallway, and I was like, yeah, I get that. It's um, it's a sweet feeling to get back in a democracy when you've been out of one.
1: How much time did you spend over there, and what age were the kids? Um,
0: see, that program that year, our students were private high school students. Um, they were sophomores, I think, so that put them around 16 and uh, I was just in country for a couple weeks, two and a half weeks, maybe something like that. Um, I also we would also have students from around the world. The majority of those were Chinese students, but also from a handful of other countries. They would come to um, to do the same course on Duke's campus. So I'd spend pretty much the whole summer, honestly, or much of the summer, doing that work. But yeah, even even a couple of weeks, even a couple of weeks on the other side of the world is enough to make you recognize that. We're on the other side of the world from each other, right? Like uh, politically, kind of like culturally, food, climate, whatever. It's, it's really fun and interesting to get shaken up by by going that far away.
1: So you didn't literally hear this song in the airport. It just was going through your head. Lives in my head like all the other <laughs> important songs. So this is a song that would have been part of your rotation, listening as it came out, and you know, in earlier in your life. Oh
0: yeah, oh yeah, I'd, I'd for sure heard this one earlier.
1: And there, I mentioned uh, when I had emailed y'all
0: about which versions to play. There are lots of, lots of uh, sappy, overly patriotic versions since, but that one's just the right amount of patriotic for me. Hmm. Do you have any musical memories associated with your time overseas? No, the the. Memory that comes to mind for me is the opposite. It's, it's two times where I couldn't have sung to save my life. Um, the smog in Shanghai is incredible. Right? They've got their own version of like the EPA, but uh, bribes tend to get in the way. So any major Chinese city, you, you can't see the sun. Um, one of our in-country contacts who was working with us had lived in Shanghai I think 7 years and she said I've never seen like a blue sky in the sunlight I have to go back to my hometown to see to see the blue sky and since I get like some sort of mm, chest allergy asthma like symptoms um I was playing we'd play basketball with the kids on our lunch break out on the on their court at the high school and I remember I played for about literally 3 minutes before I had to take a knee and I was just like gasping for breath and that'll make you feel old quick, right? When there's a bunch of 16-year-olds running around trying to slam dunk and you're just like wheezing on one knee. Um, it's not its not much of a music, but it's kind of the other end of the spectrum.
1: Hmm. Um, your bio also said that you've led students around the back trails of the Appalachians. Can you explain what that's all about?
0: Yeah, in between college and grad school, I worked for a season for the University of Georgia, and they had and still have a nature program up at Wasiga. Um, So they kind of share ownership of a camp with the 4-H program. And during the school year, we have um, school groups come up, and they'll stay two or three days. So you take the kids out in the woods to learn everything from forest ecology and herpetology to entomology we do like some pioneer skills and wilderness survival and on our night hikes uh, we would lead kids along these Appalachian trails with no flashlights you know and, and do sensory
1: hikes with them it was amazing we'd work about 14 hours a day outside have you spent much time out in the uh, inner part of Florida since you've been here I know that's where it gets painful
0: I have only slowly begun to adjust to the flatlands um there's always mountains calling for me in my heart so i've been trying to get used to the nature that is florida and i've not yet formed the relationship that i want with it here right the it seems to me as as an outsider the woods here are just sort of spiky and they just have like several kinds of plants that want to stick me and then things that
1: want to like suck my blood all year long well that's pretty accurate yeah. you, can, you can grow you can grow to love it but it is we got we do have fairly sharp uh, woods I'm,
0: so I've got a project I'm going to undertake uh, over this next fall and school year, where I'm going to visit a lot of Florida's special spots and do some digital stories around it, and try to like get to know the soul of Florida's springs and waters and wildlife. And that's my <clears throat> that's my attempt instead of just complaining about how far the mountains <laughs> are from me to like actually fall in love with you know the place that life has given me.
1: Yeah, we certainly don't have mountains. That's for sure. Um, how long have you been here in Southwest Florida, and what brought you here? Um, I
0: moved for the job, and it was a solid decision. I, I, I kind of fell in love with the faculty here in my first phone interview. Um, I was interviewed by a small committee uh, from our, our English program here. And it was, let's see, I talked to Linda Rowland, Emily Valera, and Lori Cornelius. And it felt like I was chatting with family instead of um, having an interview. You know? So I moved for the job to be part of this community, and I, I came here, started in 2018. So I moved uh,
1: 1st of July of 2018. Um, uh, you said you teach an interdisciplinary studies class, uh, so you must know Maria Rocca. I know and love Maria Rocca. She is my, uh, my matron saint of education and career. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> She's old. why I am talking to you today. <laughs> you chose your, your matron saint wisely, is all I can say. She chose me. She wouldn't let oh. me drop out again. So, <laughs> Yeah, she does that. She does that. She digs in when it's for a good cause. Uh, so what, what are the things you teach here? Just kind of break down like what your uh, what your scope is. Mm-hmm. So I teach English and creative writing.
0: So composition one, composition two, help, helping you learn, dear listener, how to write academic essays that will help you thrive for four years. Uh, and then I teach a lot of our creative writing courses, everything from intro to um, poetic and narrative techniques. Now I've, I've got a few fun special topics I do, like sci-fi and fantasy mm-hmm. writing that's pretty popular um, I do a writing from place where we combine nature writing and environmental and travel writing. I'm leaving a few things out, I think, but um, mostly mostly those. And then I moonlight with some overloads in integrated studies where I teach um, a humanities course. I'm actually teaching it right now in the summer. Uh, it's called Call of the Wild, and we explore human-animal relationships from prehistory to the present. So everywhere from cave art and shaman songs up to what we should be doing now to leave at least a little bit of Florida's nature in between the condos and parking lots? Uh,
1: when I came to FGCU in 99, which, you know, I graduated high school in 90. So this is like my fourth attempt at college. Um, <laughs> my first class I took over the summer with Maria was called the seven deadly sins. It was an in, it was before mm-hmm. they called it interdisciplinary studies, but um, that was what caught my attention. I'm like, oh, college can be something more, more um, novel and different than what I expected. And that was just great.
0: There's that happens. It definitely happens in integrated studies here, right? Where there's academic rigor, but some real passion courses. And, and I, noticed it, I noticed it in all of our faculty, right? I've, I've never before worked at a place where it seems like everybody loves coming to work, you know? And the, the faculty are all super excited about both their research and then their students. It, it's it's kind of
1: like a little slice of heaven. How long ago <clears throat> did you teach your first creative writing class?
0: Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, my first creative right. If you count the work I did, and I would, for Duke Tip, it was probably 2010. Um, we would take a group of high school students from around the country, sometimes internationally, mostly they were domestic students, and we'd take them to uh, Ghost Ranch in New Mexico. So it's the, the ranch where Georgia O'Keeffe spent the last 10 years of her life. It's up in the high desert in like sagebrush country above Santa Fe. And so we take them out there for two weeks and do kind of like an an immersed intro to creative writing with a with a nature focus.
1: So it's probably not far enough ago, or long enough ago I was trying to see if you could sort of get at. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, these digital native kids that have been using oh, sure. you know have been using words. In a way that, you know, when we grew up, either you were a writer or you tried not to write things. Mm-hmm. And But once the computers and the social media and the phones and the apps and everything came on, we're all writers now on some level, even yeah. if it's just texting. And I was just wondering if you discerned any difference in the arc of students. But I'm not sure if you've had enough time to figure that out or have you? I think so. I mean, the digital landscape has exploded in those, what, 13 years?
0: Um, oh, yeah. I guess that is 13 years ago. Jeez. Right. I know (laughs) what I'm noticing down here is I can't measure the flow of time because there are only two ish seasons ish. And without, without four seasons or three and a half seasons, which my body's used to like these four years just flew by. But yeah. So over those 13 years, um, everybody's pushing a lot of words around now, but I don't think they're pushing them any more deliberately. You know, I, I'm kind of addicted to social media. I spend a lot of time, like, looking at memes and stuff. And I don't notice that, apart from my students, just in general, I don't notice that the digital natives are using language in original, precise, evocative ways. I think it's just a lot of, like, repeating the same, you know, catchy slogans, right, Um, with bad grammar. So (laughs) I I don't know. On the one hand, yeah, there are some writing teachers that would argue everybody's everybody's writing more and we're all sort of experts in that way but I don't know that social media is encouraging people to pare down the number of words they use and make sure that they, you know, create sensory imagery and the kind
1: of things we aim for in creative writing. Hmm. Um, so I looked at your bio what does first year residential experience fellow mean?
0: That means that for a couple of years here I taught one or more courses over in Sovi in South Village, um, and had office space there. And I'm no longer doing it, so I should probably remove it from a bio. But I had a fun couple of years. <laughs> um, it's an attempt to, you know, to really kind of embed faculty in in the uh, first-year students' experience in a, in a more meaningful way. So Residence life would give us um, coupons so we could eat at the Sovi dining hall, you know. And I'd end up like chatting and mentoring some of my students, you know, off hours over hamburgers or whatever at the cafeteria
1: what was your first um, you know impression of fort myers uh, or southwest florida besides everything being flat and pointy and blood sucking Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you know like what was was there what was the biggest maybe bit of culture shock that you haven't already touched on
0: Ooh, let's talk positive culture (laughs) shock first Um, so i told you that i moved on july 1st And I got settled in. On July 4th, I took my dog, who is the great love of my life. He's 12, 12 and a half now. Uh, He's a brindled or tiger-strapped mountain cur. And I took him to the dog beach for the first time. And it it's July 4th, right, which means there are like a dozen boats all blaring different music. And there are a hundred dogs running around just like splashing through the waves. And they all have grins on their faces. And I was like, did I? Did I drive off the road and die on the way down here and I ended up in heaven? You know, uh, it, it was something like I'd ever seen. It was beautiful.
1: Yeah, I've got a 12-year-old dog and, and we haven't been out to Dog Beach for a while, but that is a really cool place, especially if you've got a dog that has the right temperament.
0: Yeah, Riley's neutral with other dogs. Like He, he could take them or leave them, but he's pretty excited about his tennis ball being thrown in the water. So that's his, that's his focus. You, uh, you make a podcast?
1: Oh, thanks for asking. Right now, I'm working You with mentioned a- it in your in your email thread, mm-hmm. but I, I don't have any more details, so flesh it out for us.
0: Right now, I am directing nine, I think, nine or 10 other uh, actors, and we are doing a science fiction story that we'll be podcasting, so it's a script- So you're doing like
1: radio drama. Oh, we're doing radio drama, man. Oh, that's a dream of mine to get into that again, or you know, cause I'm sorry, continue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's- Sounds like sounds like we have more conversations ahead of us. Um, so I wrote this, I wrote this without meaning to. I guess I got started writing a script. It's about fifty pages, and it's just a series of monologues. So I'll I'll tell you and y'all, dear listeners, our blurb, and it goes like this: Nikish Fromer, passenger on the last fleet to leave Earth, interviews her shipmates to save their stories for posterity. Dot dot dot. If anyone survives. So that's like, you know, that's our story premise. So she's going around and interviewing people and and making this documentary. And that'll be like the artifact that you're able to listen to, hopefully on your Apple Podcasts, maybe by autumn.
1: So you have nine actors that are involved. How much of, you know, like if you had to say we're 20% through, we're 80% through kind of, where are you in the arc of creation?
0: Um, Where are we in the arc? We're about 50% through with, or maybe 60% through with recordings uh, we've got a team of faculty, staff, and community actors that are helping us. So I, I worked on getting all my actors, my undergraduate actors, recorded first. Now I'm working with my graduate, um, or actually, she just graduated from our graduate program, actor, and uh, and then I'll get our faculty in and and get them all recorded. So you know, sixty percent, maybe fifty of our recording, and then the summer will be me learning how to do post post production.
1: Do you going to put in like full sound effects and all
0: that stuff? I don't think we are I want I envision it with just kind of stitch music, you know, so intro and outro music and some um, in- between musical transitions, but I don't think because it's just uh well, it's like this people coming in and being interviewed by Nikesh, I don't think we'll hear like the explosions and the gunfire and so forth.
1: understood how many how many episodes do you plan on it being? Do you know? Five episodes um, and each of them will be about 20 something minutes. Okay. Uh. Well, um, my my actual job is not making this show. It's making Gulf Coast Life, which is our ra- radio show, and we do an arts version on Thursdays. Once you guys are com- nearing completion, we'll have to have you and some of the team come on and talk about it.
0: I would absolutely love to do that. Thank you.
1: Hmm. Um, real quick before we move on, um, are you ha- at all familiar with Hitch- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, sure. Did you know that it was first a radio drama before it was a book? No i will send you something it was made on a week-to-week basis for bbc by douglas adams and a team with full narration full sound effects the whole nine yards and then he turned that into the books
0: god bless him that would be and a dream it's
1: so good it is it's what it's what makes me want to make a radio drama someday so we will talk more offline we've got um, some, we've got something in the works okay so uh before we get to your third song let's talk concerts i've uh, been to a lot of concerts
0: I'm not a, I'm not really a live show guy, because I'm not a loud noise guy, and I like to keep my music and my hearing loss separate from each other.
1: Understood. Uh, of the shows that you've seen, do you have one that was maybe, you know, one that you remember most fondly? Yes. Or have you seen any? <laughs> 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 I just sit around and play my own songs on the guitar badly.
0: Um, <laughs> no, I've been to a few shows, and I will tell you about my favorite shows, which which are two shows by Casey Chambers. But first, I have to tell you about the funniest show, which was this terrible date that I was on in Nashville with this girl I'd worked at a summer camp with. It was like years ago in college. And uh, we ended up at a bar in East Nashville for a concert, like before East Nashville got gentrified, like when it was just on the edges of being gentrified. So we're in this like bar with this low ceiling and it's smoky and there's this like, pretty terrible band with British accents. There are four guys, like, playing loudly and badly. And I, I step out to get a little fresh air, because not only do I not like loud noises, I'm not that fond of cigarettes. And there's this singer-songwriter that I had just per- heard play in, I think at the Bluebird, like, a couple of weeks before. And he's on the cell phone going, and he says, it's just this, it's just some shitty show. It's four guys on folding chairs. It'd be a lot better if I had a Percocet. And that was just so Nashville to me, right? Like, there's <laughs> this guy who's like, he's making it in Nashville, and he's out here just like, man, I wish I had trucks. Weird. Um, so that was one, that's one of my favorite show memories. But I also got to hear Australian singer-songwriter, really famous, when Casey Chambers play a couple shows in Knoxville and in Nashville. And Casey Chambers, I, I don't know if you've if you heard her. I have not. Oh, Should have brought her, but I don't have a single moment she's tied to. She's just tied to, like, my whole decades of my life. Um, Casey Chambers is from Australia, but she grew up listening to American country. So when she sings, she sounds like she's from West Virginia or Kentucky or something. She's got the accent. And then she'll stop, and she'll talk to the band or talk to the audience, and all of a sudden the Australian accent comes out. And it's the wildest mix. Um, But she's, she's great on the radio. She's great in person. And she's the her show was the first time I ever saw a famous person just stop and go, well they get into the first few bars of the song and then she just stopped and turned around the band. she goes, "No, no, no hold on, we're off. Start again." I was like, "You can do that, right? Huh. Like you don't have to be fancy. You can just be like,'re we're not we're not gonna suck here. We gotta redo this."
1: It was pretty hmm. cool. I once saw a guy who I'm a big fan of uh, named Dan Byrne, and he was playing. And, like, you can just tell he was super unhappy about something for the first song and a half. And finally, he just stopped. He fired the sound guy on stage, (laughs) and they all unplugged. And he said, Everybody get close because it was in a small place. Yeah. And they played the whole, like, you know, hour and a half, two hour long show uh, totally acoustically, and it made it just even better. It was so cool. There's there's some power in being comfortable enough to own the
0: space right no matter what happens um snow snow patrol does that if you watch them like they're uh, reworked at albert hall live thing if you see it on youtube like you can watch them just like kind of own the space and be totally comfortable with being real in front of
1: ultimately millions of people it's so, wow hmm. uh okay it is time for your final song a little bruce springsteen action the boss, the boss. Uh, how would you like to proceed what an American show today,
0: right? We moved all the way from Lee Greenwood to Bruce Springsteen. Um, I, I just don't know if you can do a show like this and not bring Bruce on. That's all I'm going to say. We'll hear about this after.
1: Okay, this is uh, Stephen Cavett's final song on this episode of Three Song Stories. This is Stolen Car by Bruce Springsteen off his 1980 album, The River.
2: I'm
1: It's so like it opened up a big prairie
0: inside of my heart with a big sky, you know? There's lots of lots of blue sky in there. Um, I bought this. This is Bruce Springsteen's only two-CD set, right? You can buy it in this little box with the blue cover of the river on it. And uh, I bought this when I was working at that nature center I mentioned for UGA, University of Georgia, up in Dahlonega. I drive into Atlanta every couple weeks or so, and get acupuncture so that my allergies would not be crazy, and I could still take kids out on the trails of the Appalachians. And I'd usually stop at this little used CD store near my parents' house, and I'd pick up, you know, two or three something to reward myself. Uh, Howlin' Wolf, a little bit of Americana, something like that. And I I remember being super excited buying this set because it's the boss, right? And getting that for like eight bucks was a steal. Um, and then that's you know one of the CDs I'd listen to while driving those winding roads back and forth from camp. It's Why all, did you choose? no oh, go ahead. Oh, it's also it's also one of the songs I would try to work up, you know, as a cover. So I'd I'd play this one over and over on my guitar, sitting in our little staff cabin.
1: So that's the reason this song in particular came off of that album.
0: Yeah, I mean there' a lot. There's lots of good stuff. the The title song, "The River," is also heartbreaking and amazing. Right. The, the, one of the things that Springsteen brings, is that like Songs of the Common People, you know? Um, but something about, well, <laughs> something about Stolen Car being so easy to play with three chords uh, made it my go-to song to try to cover from that album. I could put a capo on, just go
1: to town. And it's 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 paced slowly. Mm-hmm. So three three chords and paced slowly must make it really approachable. It's approachable, and like it leaves your room
0: to sink into the voice, you know, which is something he does with that little little raw edge in his voice so I could try to like kind of find my own way in there and I think um there's like there's heartbreak and a and a hope for better love in there which is something that's always drawn me to songs and been in my own songs it's a it's a good combo to play on an acoustic guitar in an old
1: wood-sided cabin in the mountains how many songs have you written that you could still recall without having to look at notes
0: Gosh, that's a great question. Without, without having to look at notes or turn to my best friend and be like, hey, what's that line we did? Uh, I don't know, five or six? Okay. If I, if I had a chance to listen to him once or twice, I don't know, 20, 30.
1: I have a friend who's a songwriter, and he refuses to write anything down because he says, if I can't remember it, it doesn't deserve to live. Now <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's risky, but I like it. You know, it is definitely risky, I'm sure. Um, when was the last time you played this song like uh, with a guitar?
0: Hmm. Somewhere in the last year, I think. Yeah. Somewhere in the last year. I feel like the COVID years all kind of blurred, blurred together. You might understand that, right? But I think it's been the last year. Have you done any musical collaborating since you moved to Fort Myers? Um, so my, my best friend for 16, 17 years lives up near Tallahassee where he's a park ranger. So we'll get together once or twice a year and we'll hash out songs. Um, we allegedly, we allegedly are getting back the band together, which is just me and him from college, to cut some songs, but we have yet to get around to it. He's he's been doing some projects on his own. Did you guys have a name for that act, or were you just the two? Of you? <laughs> so I got real excited back in college. I was like, we're gonna be Miltown, right? Milltown, right? M I L L T O W N. We're gonna be Milltown. Cause it's got that like working class kind of strong edge feel. And then at some point we went online and realized there were the Milltown Brothers from England. Who I don't think we were as good as we were. So we had to scrap that name. Now we're playing with Snake Creek. Snake Creek? Mm. Snake Creek. What kind of snake? I don't know. I kept seeing Snake Creek when I was traveling out west, like going through Oklahoma and, and into one or two other states. I kept running into signs for Snake Creek. And I was like, look, brother, it's a sign. <laughs> so, so we're toying with the name Snake Creek now. I guess All if right. I had to pick, I'd say a black rat or a black
1: racer. You mentioned uh, you know buying the that box set those CDs. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you purchased music that had a physical form that you could hold in your hands?
0: Oh, those days are those days are almost over. Um, the last the last CD I've held in my hands, I think was was Colin uh, Colin Johnson's River of the Crying Bird. Uh, Colin's the friend I mentioned. He's a park ranger at Wakulla Springs State Park, and he just put out this album within the last year or so and it's all songs inspired by the um the wildlife and the nature of that area of the Wakala River so Mm -hmm. and it has so much range it's got like he's got a a heavy metal song right about woolly mammoths and he's got kind of a singer songwritery song about um Cliff Swallows like this whole this whole range it's amazing so I've got his physical cd um that I love to listen to and uh, again, listeners, that's River of the Crime Bird. It's pretty great. And the rest are just
1: like my Spotify subscription now. Have you ripped his CD to MP3s and put it on your phone so you can listen to it on your little tiny speaker in your Jeep? I feel like what you're asking is, am I a good friend? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm an okay friend.
0: <laughs> but you have a CD player at home, presumably. I've got a CD player in the old MacBook, and, uh, and I will have a CD player when I put this new radio in the Jeep.
1: <laughs> You're putting a CD player into your 20-year-old Jeep. Uh, you know, you got to keep it classy. <laughs> you got to keep it classy. Um, okay, well, we are heading toward an end here, so we're going to speed round you. So oh, okay. uh, so be ready, be go. nimble, let's go. Uh, do you have a nickname that's stuck over the course of your life? My sister Sherry called me Stevie growing up, but that's it. You've already mentioned that you don't do karaoke. Um <laughs> This one, uh, I found this through digging around. This is not normally part of our speed round, but do you really own a giant human-sized hamster ball? I don't own
0: one. I got to be in a giant human-sized hamster ball at the University of Tennessee
1: at Chattanooga. All right. Do you have any TV theme songs that you know the words to that if we pulled it up on YouTube, you would sing with us and or for us? Oh, gosh. If I did, it would take us all by surprise. There's probably something in there,
0: like from childhood, but I'm unaware of it. It lives with, with all the other trauma in the back of the closet.
1: If you were a championship wrestler, what would be your entry music? Ooh. Gosh, let me think about that.
0: Now, it's too easy to say, like, we will rock you. Um, I'd like to do something that shakes it up, right? Like in the, in the movie Warrior where the fighter comes in with classical music playing to remind him to breathe. I'd like to do something a little, a little shake you up, unexpected. Not, not, like, not some hard driven rock, but something a little quieter. I'd like to be a thinking
1: fighter. You know, like it's, a, it's kind of a chess match on the mat. You got a song you can pull out to exemplify that?
0: No, I'd have to spend two weeks trying to go through. I don't you can know. do Amazing Grace. We can, <laughs> Amazing Grace because I'm about to send you to Jesus. <laughs> or maybe I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. You know, they're going to be looking at me like, what's this guy about to do? Is he going to get me saved or is he going to tap me out?
1: If you were a cocktail or a drink of some kind that was distilled you, what would it be?
0: Oh gosh.
1: It's probably just a,
0: it's probably just a whiskey. Yeah, it's probably just a whiskey.
1: What kind of whiskey? Describe the glass. We're going to add it to our cocktail cookbook. Man. Ooh, you got me now. Well, you can just be Jim Beam in a shot glass if you want.
0: Yeah, it's probably... It's maybe Jameson in a shot glass. Burns like
1: it it burns a little bit, but it tastes good. What's it called, if you had to name it? It's called Out of the Mountains. Um, If you had to guess, what would you say is the song that you've listened to the most times in your life? Ooh.
0: Song I've listened to the most... It's probably... Maybe Human by The Killers or something by Snow Patrol. I've listened to, I've listened to those on Shuffle, like
1: The Killers in Spotify for months at a time. Probably one of those. Um, could you imagine a song that you wish you could hear again for the first time ever?
0: Oh, I love that question. Um, I'd, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and hear my family sing any gospel song when I was young. You know, but like hear me with them all just singing it. Was there any recording being done at all? There are a couple of recordings somewhere from when we were doing the quote special music, end quote, at the church service, but I don't know where they've ended up.
1: Hmm. Um, What would you say is the most overplayed song of all time?
0: Anything by Justin Bieber or Britney Spears?
1: Good enough. (laughs) I want to get some, we're going to get some hate mail, but. Um, is there any kind of music or more particularly a song that you'll avoid listening to and what we're really trying to get at here is because you don't want to be reminded of where it takes you?
0: Oh, wow. Um, yeah, let me think a second. I'm i I'm sure there are a couple of, like a couple of breakup or got me through breakup songs. I remember there being moments where I would fast forward past something. Um, that, Is it Paramore that does that, after all this time I'm still into you? That reminds me of somebody I was dating, so I don't listen to that one much. Um, I also, this isn't exactly a moment, but I steer clear of most rap because I prefer to avoid misogyny. And so I always go looking for, like, rap that's welcoming to women also.
2: Yeah, it's a song by Paramore, still into you.
1: That's the one. If you could broadcast a song into every human's consciousness simultaneously, which song would it be?
0: I wrote this lullaby. I would I would broadcast this lullaby into everyone's consciousness simultaneously. How's it go? I knew you were going to ask me. You know, it's <laughs> funny. This is one of the few songs I can actually finger pick on the guitar, and so it's totally alien to try it without. But let me see if I can move my fingers here. Close your eyes, angel, and just fly next to me. Morning always comes, and it'll bring back the sun you will see. And if you fall asleep, I will hold your dreams. Something
1: like that. Very nice. Um, What would your 14-year-old self think of uh, who you are here today? Ooh, we went to, went to church and therapy today.
0: Um, I actually think, in some ways, he would be impressed that I've turned out to be pretty good with people. Like, I gained some social skills somewhere along the way. He might he might feel like I've sold out because I'm not like deep in the woods somewhere chasing bears or whatever most days. But I think he'd be impressed that
1: like I talk to some people and they smile at me. <laughs> Hmm. Um, okay, it is time for you to recommend your three people who you will share this uh, experience with, and who you think we might be able to talk to. Okay, I may be swinging and missing here. I know you've had a lot of
0: faculty on. I feel like Lori Cornelius, uh, language and lit. She has not been on the show. Emily Valaire, language and lit. She has not been on the show. Joel Ying, integrated studies. He has not been on the show. Boom. I'm gonna. Can
1: I go for four? No. Okay. There those are my weird. three. We Those have my bylaws, thing. and you have tried to breach them. <laughs> 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 oh, why is security walking in right now? It's weird. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's been a blast. I appreciate it. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is our online content producer and she hosts. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. If you'd like to hear a slightly shorter version of this interview, but one that contains longer versions of the songs, go to WGCU.org and click the listen button at the top of the page. Our parting tune this week takes us back one year to episode 169 with Air Force Brigadier General and fighter pilot Jim Boots Demarest. By the way, if you want to hear some of the lyrics he's forward promoting in this story, you'll just have to go download his episode and listen to it for yourself.
2: So the second song comes from my fighter pilot days. I'm going to take us back to Bitburg Air Base, Germany in the mid-1980s. It was very much a go-to-war environment. And... uh, One of the things that's accurate about Top Gun is that a fighter squadron is is like a fraternity. Our squadrons were were fairly good size. We had 24 assigned F-15s and about 35 fighter pilots. And because I was stationed in Europe, uh, whenever you're flying fighters overseas, the units become very close. You don't have all the amenities in the States. You don't have the same access to your families. We become a family, a very close-knit unit. This song came out, Money's for Nothing. One of the guys in our squadron completely rewrote the lyrics to the song so there's a fighter pilot version that i'll share a little bit with you here after we listen to the song and it'll give you kind of a sense as to what was important to us what the camaraderie was like what i want you to listen or imagine as you hear this song is there's 35 drunk fighter pilots in a bar singing a song like this at the top of their lungs
1: with their own new lyrics
2: with their own new lyrics yeah turn the music up just loud enough to follow along the music and the rest of us are going to sing over the top
1: keep listening next time on three song stories
0: oh it can be cocaine then